Having grown up in the 20th and 21st centuries, most of us have a narrow mental window through which to view the subject of human welfare and insurance. It's almost impossible for us to imagine a world in which Social Security and Medicare and multiple other state-funded benefits simply don't exist. This world seems like the norm because it's the way it's always been. States, by definition, provide Social Security and social insurances for old age and for the needy. There are, however, still quite a few people out there living today who can remember the time prior to the passage of America's first Social Security Act in 1935. Aside, perhaps, from some memories associated with the Great Depression, which was, by the way, an uncommon event and a temporary event, okay, these people can vouch for what I'm about to express in this brief talk. That in a free society, cradle-to-grave welfare issues are a matter only of private insurance, only of private individuals, only of private families and private enterprise and private contracts. In other words, it's private. And contrary to popular assumptions today, these same people uh, can also vouch that in such a society, people didn't commonly go hungry, they didn't starve in old age, uh, they didn't go bankrupt or become homeless uh, due to medical expenses, or any of the nightmare scenarios that you'll hear in political discussions anytime the subject of privatization is brought up. Okay. Those things simply did not happen except in extraordinary circumstances, as they still do today, by the way, in extraordinary circumstances, despite the vast socialistic measures we have in place. So in other words, in a free society, private welfare and insurance are both the principle and viable practice. So let's talk about those two things. First, let's talk about the principle of freedom in welfare. A truly free society will exercise individual liberty and responsibility in all the areas of human welfare. That includes health insurance, old age insurance, retirement insurance, whatever you want to call it, uh, retirement planning, survivor's benefits, disability, unemployment, all the things of that nature. Free people simply learn and work to make provisions, to plan, to manage, to take care of themselves and their own families. And in turn, when the time of need comes, they are taken care of, not by the state, but by their own private arrangements their own private funds, their insurance benefits, their own families, to the extent that need be. And preferably, they'll have a combination of all of those things. As long as the state, however, is involved in funding and or regulating any of these matters, we don't have a free society. The state is by definition an agency of legal coercion. The civil government is by definition an agency of force. To argue for anything to be placed under the proper responsibility of civil government is to say that it's right in the eyes of God to use force, even threats of lethal force if necessary, in order to compel people to do that thing. In areas of uh, remuneration or restitution for a crime, legal force makes sense, obviously. Okay, but this is by definition the negation of freedom. A criminal who's under civil penal sanctions is to that degree a slave. 
And it's ironic, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which abolished slavery, allows that exception for punishment for crime. Because the very nature of being compelled to do something is by definition a loss of liberty. Coercion is servitude. But since this is so, the more we expand the state's power to coerce people, the more we deny freedom and liberty in society. And so the very moment we begin to expand the state's functions and institutions beyond the proper punishment of crime, that same moment we begin to make slaves out of free men. And thus the moment we begin to subject basic cradle-to-grave issues beneath the coercive arm of civil government, okay? That is to legitimize the welfare state to the slightest degree. That very moment is the moment we begin to subvert a free society. In fact, there are very many people today who would argue for the existence of the expansion of the welfare state because they consciously believe it is legitimate to use violence or threats of force in order to make society as they see it virtuous. And that's a doctrine that goes back many years. We'll talk about it in a little while. Uh, however they wish to make society virtuous, they'll use force in order to make it look uh, uh, whatever their intentions are, to make it appear to be good intentions. Okay. Many liberals and progressives have long since been very open about this very belief. And many conservatives, by the way, hold the same belief today, although they're less open about it or, or maybe sometimes unconscious of it. Okay. The belief in state coercion must be seen for what it is. It's anti-Christian. It's unbiblical. It's against every reasonable idea of liberty on which this country was founded. And it's certainly opposed to any idea of, of uh, individual liberty and responsibility. Okay, uh, consider the founding era. There was no welfare state when Thomas Jefferson penned the immortal words. All men are created equal. They're endowed with their, by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay, there was no welfare state then. There was none when Benjamin Franklin published Poor Richard's Almanac uh, uh, and started his own printing business, by the way, publishing business. Okay? There was no welfare state when the framers signed the Constitution. And consequently, subsequently, there was no welfare state in America through virtually all of the 19th century, although it didn't begin to creep in near the later part of that century. There was no welfare state in the original American way. And there certainly are people still living today who can remember living before the imposition of that system. And they can tell you it was a family-based society. And human welfare was a family-based and business-based affair. And it worked. So let's discuss then, since we've talked about the principle of freedom in, in welfare, let's talk about the practice of welfare in a free society. In practice, it must be family-based. The family is the basic welfare unit of society, and the church secondarily. There is the reality of social debt. We have to deal with it. You come into this world helpless. You have no property. You are entirely dependent upon the love and the provision of your parents. Okay, and that dependence runs longer for humans than any other living species. Okay, anywhere normally from 18 to 20 years, and these days it goes well beyond that in many cases. Okay. During nearly that whole period, you are indebted to the welfare provided by your parents. Parents have a moral obligation to provide this welfare. 
uh, in the form of food and clothing, shelter, uh, education, as well as, of course, the many intangibles such as love and discipline. Uh, sometimes discipline's tangible, but that's another story. Uh, in turn, uh, as children uh, remain indebted for those many years of provision, they can repay their familial debt if their parents need provision and care in their elderly years. So in the typical family scenario, there's always at least one breadwinner distributing food and, uh, to several dependents. Now the cementing of that family commitment has been for some 2,000 years, the marriage vow. It's a binding oath, a legally binding oath that binds two people into a covenant of, among other things, perpetual welfare for each other and of course the progeny they produce. All right, now we tend to lose sight of that very weighty material side of the promise that's made in the marital oath. It gets obscured in the romantic side of things, all of the flowers and kisses and the white dresses and the cake and the champagne, which are all good things, by the way. Uh, but take a listen for just a moment to what is actually being said in those marital vows. Okay? Now, I'm going to quote to you the traditional vow from the Anglican Book of Prayer, which is the basis for nearly all of American Protestant marital vows, historically speaking. It goes like this. The groom says, quote, I groom, take the bride to my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better for worse, for richer for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance, and thereto I plight thee my troth, that is language of making a covenant. Okay. The bride repeats essentially the same thing with minor differences. And then the groom places the ring on the bride's finger and he adds to his oath by saying this, and this is very important. With this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship, and with all my worldly goods I thee endow. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Now look at those vows. Okay. Very significant portions of those vows pertain uh, to a commitment of material wealth for material health, in sickness and in health, of course, until death. And towards those ends, the vow includes a pledge of the devotion of the person's body. In other words, all of their physical capacity and their labor, the fruits of their labor and their worldly goods. Okay? That is a welfare program, period. And by the way, it is the original prenuptial agreement. Because until after this vow is taken and the marriage is consummated, the covenant is not yet in force. Okay, the vow is taken technically before the marriage is final, even though it's part of the process. Uh, so, so it is technically prenuptial. The idea of a prenuptial agreement today we think of as something that a rich partner does to limit the risk of his or sometimes her wealth in the event of a divorce. In other words, to limit the scope of the traditional vow uh, in relation to material wealth. So in effect, uh, a modern prenuptial agreement is divorce protection. Okay? But that was not the original and normal idea of marriage. The original and fundamental prenuptial agreement is the traditional marital vow, and it is a binding legal oath to provide for the partner's welfare and health until death, with exceptions, of course, uh, in cases of adultery and sometimes abandonment, and that's a different discussion. And it was a legally enforceable oath, by the way. So it's not surprising then uh, that with the rise of the welfare state, 
has come the corresponding decline of the family in society and the outright cheapening of marriage through very easy no-fault divorce. In other words, the state-dominated system has helped destroy the nature of the marriage commitment for most people. And for some of those uh, ideologies, for example, Marxism and other secular traditions, it was consciously designed to destroy the family and society. Uh, all that aside, in the original American way, and in fact throughout the West and for most of Western history, especially Christian history, the marriage vow was the foundation of social insurance, both for the provision uh, of the elderly and for the education of children and for all other forms of insurance. Uh, but the same was true of health care. It was primarily carried out by the family. The church did have a large role in the creation of hospitals and during the Middle Ages, but those were not widely used by the populations, and especially not in the way we view hospitals and doctors today. Yet when they did use those things, they, uh, it was considered a private affair, and it was often accompanied uh, by charity from the sponsoring church, not the state. Uh, but since healthcare was largely decentralized with families, their own, uh, on their own as need be, I should say, there has always been, in America at least, until more, more recent times, a very broad base of healthcare providers in a free market. Okay. And in addition to that, in the 19th century, there was a tremendous development of private insurance companies of all kinds, not just health, but life insurance, uh, fire insurance, travel insurance, shipping insurance, crop deposit insurance, uh, and eventually reinsurance, which is basically insurance for insurance companies that face losses and payments. People learned very quickly that by paying a small premium, they could pool their risk together and protect themselves against catastrophic losses. And of course, the insurance companies were constantly improving. Uh, advances in the actuarial tables, the competitions between the companies to gain uh, clients, these things kept the premiums down. And most importantly, the fact that it remained in the free markets and the companies did not have state regulation or sponsorship also helped keep the premiums affordable because it was a truly free competitive market. So in the original free American way, the government was not involved in funding or managing these affairs nor was it involved in any such redistribution of wealth. The only legal aspect of the whole thing would have been twofold. First, it would have been the enforceable aspects of a marriage vow, which itself had been entered into freely. And once having taken that oath, if a party abdicated on its responsibility, either to the spouse or to the children, the government could enforce sanctions in relation to that oath. Okay, and this, of course, protects the innocents. And secondly would have been the enforceable aspects of insurance contracts, which had also been entered into freely. Now, this ideal of liberty in human welfare, uh, as I said, is the original American way, and it has the following five benefits. Number one, individuals retain sovereignty over their own decisions, and this regards retirement, old age, health, all forms of insurance, and it's basically your decision, not some bureaucrat's decision. If, however, in a free society, you prefer it to be someone else's decision, you can make a free contract with that person 
to take care of whatever you want them to take care of. But in a free society, the difference is you're not allowed to demand or force anyone else to pay for those decisions. And that, of course, is the essence of the state involvement. Number two. Okay, so number one is, is sovereignty. You retain sovereignty over your decisions. Number two, uh, there is a much greater value placed on the family. And when that happens, families tend to want to stick together. Okay. Uh, the, the marriage vow returns to be the basis of human society. Uh, churches and, and private-based charities become more prominent in, in society. Okay? So it restores also with that the true nature of charity, uh, voluntary care for the helpless. Uh, and that in turn decentralizes the decisions made of who truly deserves aid. Okay? All of these things, they inhibit, number one, those who would take advantage of a charitable system, and yet at the same time, it allows for latitude to be made in those decisions between different charities. Some charities may want to be very strict. Some may want to be very open about it. It's their decision. Number three, property is protected. No one confiscates your property for redistribution, and you don't demand or even accept anyone else's property to be confiscated and given to you or others. Number four, the civil government cannot penalize anyone who has not committed a crime. And it cannot impose obligations without your consent, either in a vow or in a contract freely entered into. You can choose to abstain from a marital vow. You can choose to abstain from an insurance contract. Any other situation you think would obligate you to pay taxes or fines or penalties or premiums, okay? And this, of course, means you also choose to accept the consequences of that choice, should you have to face the consequences in a time of need. You'll have to fall upon the mercy of those charities uh, should they decide to help you. Okay. But also, the state would uphold those vows and contracts in a court of law and enforce them. And only those things would be legally enforceable. Number five. Uh, pertains to the next generation. The next generation certainly has obligations to the previous, but primarily in regard to its familial connections. Parents, in turn, must be honored by that generation uh, in order for it to work, and that, of course, is the fifth commandment. Okay? That being so, the government will not be operating an intergenerational Ponzi scheme, which is essentially the nature of Social Security. So as we saw in our first topic with education in a free America, we can easily see that the original way preserved individual freedom and individual responsibility in both principle and practice. Okay? Welfare was a matter of individual and family liberty, and it worked. Now, these principles are not only traditionally American, but they are, as you all know, uh, distinctly biblical in that they uphold the integrity and the centrality of the family. They honor family legacies and trusts, the honoring of parents, uh, the protection of inheritance and contracts and all of those things. That is social freedom. That's freedom and social security and insurance. So the question is, how was that freedom lost? How did this society that was once so ideal come to be dominated by so-called cradle-to-grave welfare programs administered by a paternal state? Why do we have massive welfare programs where a free society once was. Well, as with the discussion of the state takeover of education, the answer is going to be as illuminating as it is dark in what it reveals. And we will cover that in the next talk.